Man, I love this book, don't you? And I uh, love the uh, book of 1 Thessalonians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church. It's such an encouragement and a, and a joy to see the, the um, relationship that Paul had with them and, and the love that they shared uh, for each other. So this morning we're going to actually still go back to chapter 2. We haven't quite finished it yet. And, um, but for just a recap, let's, let's kind of look back at what we've covered so far. And I trust that the study of this letter will be a, a blessing to you and that you will be able to bless others as a result of studying the word like this. So what's a little recap here. Paul is on what is known as his second missionary journey. And he has with him traveling companions, and this is a test. I just want to see how many of you know who's with him. You have Paul. Go ahead. Okay, so Silvanus, which is the old King James way of saying uh, Silas, or as another name for Silas. Timothy, anybody else? I have a son with a name. Luke, very good. Okay. I was pointing right at him. So good. He had these men traveling with him. And uh, it was on this trip, as you might recall, that Paul wanted to take the gospel to Asia. And the Lord said no. And instead, he pointed them to go towards Europe or Macedonia. We often call it the Macedonian call. But it was there that Paul had a change of direction, ordered of the Lord, and you're here this morning because of it. Okay, so what happened 2,000 years ago in a moment of time had an effect in your life. Uh, It has an effect in your life even to this day. So that decision ultimately resulted in us hearing the gospel and being saved, and uh, we are here because of that choice. So um, this will be a test just for those people who were in my class this morning to see if you were listening. And we were looking at, I, I mentioned something about Paul's journey. The first place he came to in this new European uh, adventure, which, what city did he come to first? I'm sorry? Philippi. Okay. Aced it. Second city he came to. It's a hint. We're studying the book. Thessalonica. Now, I said to you this morning that there was a problem in Philippi. There was persecution. There was a problem in Thessalonica. There was persecution. And he had to keep moving on. But when he got to the next city, this is the big clue, these people were more noble-minded, and they searched the Scripture to see if what Paul was saying was true, and these people are called the... Oh, wonderful. You were listening. I love it. Okay, so the Bereans. That was the next part of their journey. And uh, from there, Paul uh, went on to um, Athens... And uh, then on to Corinth. While he was in Berea, the same people that stirred up trouble in Thessalonica found out he was in Berea. They traveled to Berea themselves, and they started to stir up trouble there too. And he began to have persecution there. Now, the Berean church, the people who came to know the Lord... They, they really dug in, and they sought to see what the Scripture said was true, and they believed the Scripture. 
And so Paul went on to Athens. But Paul had just left new converts in Berea and had left new converts before that in Thessalonica. And they were just baby Christians. And these poor, this poor infant church had no strong leadership in their midst. And he longed to be back with them. He loved them dearly. He had just led them to Christ. He had taught them as much as he could while he was there before he was thrown out of the city, basically, or encouraged to go on. And he just longed to be with them, wanted to go back to see them, but he couldn't. And so Paul said, you know, um, when he went to Athens, uh, well, first of all, he left Silas and Timothy in Berea so that they could continue on with the ministry in Berea. Paul went on to Athens. When he got to Athens and he was about to start the ministry in Athens, he called for Timothy and for Silas to come meet with him there in Athens. And when they got there, they had a little meeting, a discussion. And Paul was sharing with them, and we have to read this into the Scripture, he shared with them his love, his concern, his compassion for the church in Thessalonica. And he says, I can't go. And they said, why can't you go? And he said, because Satan has hindered me. And we don't know how he did it. But he hindered Paul in some way. Not just once, but twice from going back to Thessalonica. And so he could not go back personally, but he wanted them to be helped. And so he sent um, Timothy back to um, Thessalonica, and, and Silas he sent to Philippi. And he was left alone in Athens, and he had to do the ministry on his own there in Athens. I believe Luke was still with him at that point, though. So Timothy was being sent back to Thessalonica to help them. So let's finish up chapter 2, but I want to emphasize this as we read this passage. Listen carefully to what Paul says that happened here. So let me go one step further just to kind of finish up the journey part of it. After he ministered in Athens, uh, Timothy went to Thessalonica, did what he was to do in Thessalonica, came back to Athens to be with Paul, Silas came back to be with Paul in Athens, they ministered the word there, then they moved to Corinth. And it was at that time that Paul took a paper or papyrus and, uh, and a quill, and he began to write a letter to the Thessalonican church. And that's what we have here, First Thessalonians. And so the, um, this is what he says to them. After getting the report back from Timothy, he says this, But we, brethren, verse 17 of chapter 2, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So let's carry on with this passage. The church at Thessalonica has suffered persecution. It was because of this persecution that Paul had to leave town and go on to Berea. But they were left in town. They were left suffering persecution. They were new believers. It's like taking a newborn child and leaving him out on the street to the elements. I mean, that's how Paul felt about it, that, that I'm leaving this baby church 
to fend for themselves. But let me tell you, believers, even if you're young in the faith, you have the Lord. And the Lord is your protector. The Lord is your shield. The Lord is your defender. The Lord is your strong tower. Okay? You have the Lord. And they had the Lord as well. So the pers- there, were persecution- there was persecution in town. And these persecutors came to them and began to tell all kinds of lies about Paul and Silas and the others. And began to, to undermine the work that Paul had started there in Thessalonica. They told lies about their ministry. They told lies about their motives. They told lies about their methods. And now they were telling lies about Paul and his care for them. They were likely saying that, yeah, you know what, Paul didn't come back to you because he really doesn't care for you. If he really cared for you, don't you think he'd come back? No, he's abandoned you. You're orphans. He's left you high and dry. Okay? That's the kind of stuff that they were probably saying about Paul. And we, again, you read this because of what the scripture says or how Paul answers these, these accusations. If he really loved you, he would come and see you face to face. Where is he if he loves you so much? Where did he go if he's so much in love with you? He's gone. And Paul reminds them uh, in, earlier in this chapter, chapter 2, that he was like a mother to them. He was a tender, affectionate, caring, loving as he ministered the word of God. And he says, you yourselves know this. I was there. You know my love for you. That hasn't changed. And he reminds them that he was like a father. He says, you know that I was like a father to you. I supported you. I directed you. I gave you instruction. I gave you help. I came along like a comforter to help guide you in the way. And in this section, Paul reveals what's in his heart. He says to them, um, he says, we have been taken away from you. We have been taken away from you. He said, this is like bereavement. You know, when somebody suddenly dies, you go, (gasps) you know, I didn't see that one coming. I didn't expect that. And Paul says, that's what it feels like to me to be separated from you. It's a bereavement. I've, I've been separated from you. I didn't want to leave you. I didn't intend to leave you. But Satan um, uh, opposed us. A bereavement. He was torn from them. And as a parent who longed to be able to be with them and help them, he, retur- he tried to return. He says that. I tried time and again, but Satan has hindered us. I like the way the New Living Translation, or, yeah, the New Living Translation reads. It says, in verses 17 and 18, we tried very hard to come back because of our, of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. Do you know how Paul counters the lies? The only way we should ever counter lies with the truth. The truth, the truth the truth. The truth will set you free. He tried again and again to come to him. He says, look, they're telling you, I don't want to be there. The fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, I have tried time and again. But Satan has hindered us, and I cannot come. Satan prevented us. How did Paul know that it was Satan who was hindering him? How did he know that? 
It's a good question for us to ask when we say Satan has hindered us or, or we're facing trouble or difficulty or persecution. He says he tried time and again, an intense longing to be with him, Satan prevent him. How does he know it was Satan? Well, let me say this to you. We're going to talk about this for a minute. Anytime there is opposition to the work that God clearly wants us to do, I will guarantee you it is satanic opposition. It may come in the form of a person who Satan is using. It may come in the form of a temptation. It may come in the form of circumstances in your life. It may come in the form of illnesses or things like that. We see all of those activities by Satan in the Scripture. And he hinders. He is opposed to the work of God. He is opposed to the gospel because he knows that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Do you think he's going to sit on the sidelines and watch people get saved and not try to counter that? Of course he's going to do that. He is in opposition to God on every count. And that's what he's doing here. He is opposed to the growth of believers. And there were lies being told about the work and the workers. And um, there are people who stand in the way of doing the will of God. And you know that the source is Satan. The Bible says this of Satan, that he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Every lie ultimately has its source or its beginning from Satan. That's where it comes from. So if you hear people who are talking about the scripture and they are lying, if they are talking about people who are serving the Lord and they are lying, if you hear lies about the work, lies about servants of the Lord, lies about the scripture, you know the source. Don't be fooled by it. It's satanic opposition. It's not from God. Why? How do we know it's not from God? Because God is not a man that he should lie. The scripture says that. But the source of the lies is Satan, the father of lies. Satan is also called in Scripture the accuser of the brethren. And we know from Revelation 12.10 that his doom is sure. Praise the Lord. I want to tell you that. Praise the Lord right now. For the accuser of our brethren, it says, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Praise God. What the Bible is saying is this. Satan's job is pretty simple. He lies and he accuses the brethren. That's what he does. That's his job. That's what he does. And so he looks at you and he says, oh, you just sinned. I'm going to go accuse you before the father. And he does. And he says, hey, you know, that child of yours, that one that you saved, he just sinned. She just sinned. You are just, you are holy, you need to condemn that sin. And our advocate comes forward, and he comes before the Father, and he holds out his pierced hands, and he shows his pierced feet, and he sees the piercing in his side from the sword, and he says, my blood has cleansed them from every sin. He is our advocate. He is our defense lawyer. He is the one who stands in our place before the Father, and Satan has nothing more to say because our sins are paid in full. Praise the Lord. 
But he is an accuser. He tries over and over again. It says day and night. He doesn't stop. And the problem is, he comes to us as well. And he whispers in your ear. And he whispers in my ear. And he says, yeah, you failed the Lord. You're a failure. You're a liar, a cheat, a sinner. And you're so bad, you're going to go to hell. Truth or a lie? It's a lie. Don't believe the lies that Satan tells you. He is a liar from the beginning, and he is an accuser of the brethren. Believe the truth. Believe the truth. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something, in case you haven't already seen it, haven't felt it yourselves, or know it yourselves. We are in a spiritual battle. It's a war. And there are casualties in this war. And you have to understand that. Whatever God is blessing, Satan will attack. Satan tries to hinder. And we have to fight back. But our weapons are not bombs and guns. Our weapons are prayer and love and faith. And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Paul points an accusing finger at Satan and says, he is the one who has hindered us. More than once, time and again, he's the one who hindered us. And sometimes we face trials in our life, and uh, Satan hinders the progress of the work, and we say, why? Why does the Lord allow it? Why doesn't the Lord just step in and put an end to all of this nonsense? Why, why, why? Well, trials come our way for a variety of reasons. I actually wrote a book on this one time, didn't publish it, but I do have a book on it. And it's more than I can give you this morning. But I'm going to give you just five things, five whys, five answers to that why. First of all, um, I want to say that God never gives us a trial that we cannot endure. Never. He does does not give us trials that are beyond our ability to endure. It says that uh, he will also provide a way of escape so that we might endure it. He's not taking us out of the trial, but he gives us the strength, the ability, his strength, his ability to go through the trial. Okay? He never gives us more than we are able to endure. Never. The Bible is sure on that. Secondly, every trial that we have must first pass through a filter. Actually, many filters. One of those filters is the love of God. He will not give us any kind of trial without it first passing through his love. It must also pass through his wisdom, his knowledge, his care, all of his attributes. He will allow trials to come our way, but they will be specifically allotted to us to gain the most benefit for us in the trial. Third, even trials, even difficulties, even satanic attacks are meant for our good. The Bible says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you might be thorough or complete, lacking nothing, fully mature. God's purpose is to harness those things in our lives so that we might be fully mature 
as believers, more like Christ. Fourth, and you, not, you must remember this all the time, God causes all things to work together for our good. Good. Remember that movie we saw the other last week? God is good. And all the time, okay, never changes. That is who God is. He is good. He will never allow us to face more than we are able to bear, and He will cause all things to work together for good. You love Him, you know Him, He's working in your life for your good, for your best. Fifth, James chapter 5, verse 11 says this, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the end intended by the Lord. I love that verse. I'll tell you something. I have gone through trials in my life. Sometimes I feel like trials never end, but I have never gone through trials as deep and as severe as Job. Never. I have never faced a trial where I've lost everything and everyone I knew in one single day. And then to top it off, had boils on my body that I had to scrape with clay. I have not faced what Job faced. And yet Job could say, with full assurance of faith, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is what Job did in his severe trial. God wasn't against him. He was for him. And God in this trial was basically saying, look, I have something intended. I, I have an intention for Job. Something that God intended for Job. And you know what that was? That he might know that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. In a trial, the tendency that we have is to think, the Lord doesn't love me anymore. Okay? I'm simplifying it. I'm making light of it. But it hurts sometimes to go through trials. Sometimes you wonder, like, why is my world crashing around me? You know? And we must recognize that God has a great intention for us, that we might know personally in a very real and palpable way that God is compassionate. Very compassionate, it says, and merciful. Satan hindered Paul from going back to Thessalonica. From a human perspective, it may, it may not have made any sense to him at the time. But you see, God has a much, much bigger plan. And the result of Paul not going to Thessalonica meant that he sent Timothy to Thessalonica instead. And Timothy was a young man. He was a holy, godly young man. But he needed some schooling. He needed some training. He needed some work to do himself. And he needed to step up to the plate. And when the opportunity came and Paul was hindered, he says to Silas and to Timothy and to Luke, who's going to go? Because they need help. And Timothy stepped up to the plate. And if you're a young man here this morning or a young woman, I want to tell you something. God wants to use you too. Step up to the plate. Step up to the plate. Be used of the Lord. Don't sit back and look at others doing all of the work. Step up to the plate and be used of God. 
just like Timothy was. Who will go? Timothy's hand went up. I'll go. I'll go. I'll make the journey back. I will help. I will do whatever is necessary. I will help that church. All right, Timothy, you're on. What can I do, Silas says? Go to Philippi. Help them out. Okay, I'm on my way. Step up to the plate and be used by God. God wants to use you. He saved you because he has works for you to accomplish for him. Be used by God. Paul ended up sending Timothy. So that's one of the benefits that actually came from Satan's hindrance. Timothy grew, and so did the church. But there's a, there's a, a bigger picture here still. 2,000 years later, guess what? We're studying this book, and it's affecting our lives. That book of 1 Thessalonians would not have been written had Paul just gone himself. This would all be lost. And so much of the teaching of the coming of the Lord, which is in this book, we wouldn't know. The comfort, the help, the encouragement that comes from knowing what's coming, we wouldn't know about. At least not through Thessalonians. Okay, let's take a look at what Paul has to say in verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Wow. I look out at some of you this morning, and I've had the privilege of leading some of you to the Lord. That does my heart good. That's a tremendous encouragement to anybody to lead somebody to the Lord. Great encouragement. And in the midst of personal trials and difficulties... Sometimes I can focus on myself and my problems and my this and me and myself and I. and That's what we do in trials, right? It's all about me. No, it's not. Do you know what encourages me? To look at you and say, you know what? I led him to the Lord. I led her to the Lord. He's going on well for God. That's a tremendous encouragement to me. Tremendous encouragement. But not only that, I'm like Paul, and I say, you are my hope. You are my joy. You are my crown of rejoicing. Why? Because I know that Jesus is coming back, and that you are going to be taken home to be with him as well. You're going to be taken home to heaven with me. You're going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. And he's going to take you home to heaven. You will be among the saints of the church. And you will be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you will be there when it comes time to receive the crowns that the Lord is going to give out for your service. And you will be among the throngs of believers who will take that crown off their head and they will cast it at the feet of Jesus and you will fall on your knees and you will worship the Lord and the whole of heaven will break out into song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who has redeemed us to God by His blood. Oh, it does my heart good because you're going to be there and you're going to be there with me. Praise the Lord. You are my joy, my hope, my joy, my crown of rejoicing. Worthy is the Lamb. Okay, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it would be good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, 
that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before, when we were with you, that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Well, Paul has already said that Satan was hindering him, and uh, he couldn't go, but Timothy was able to go. And this was, as I say, an opportunity for Timothy to step up and to grow in spiritual service. I want you to think about this for a minute, though. Imagine being there with Paul. You had seen the, Thessalonian, the people in Philippi saved, the people in Thessalonians saved, the people in um, Berea saved, and now Paul says, you know what, I have such a longing to go back to those people in Thessalonica. They need help. They need to grow. We left them as, as orphans, as babies. Now, think about it. If you're among the team, you're Silas or Timothy or Luke, would you step up to the plate and say, I'll go. I will go. I will go and help them. And then after saying it, you go, uh, what am I going to do when I get there? What's going to happen when I get there? I mean, I've never done this before. Now, what does he do? Paul sent him on a mission. We'll talk about just in a minute here. So he was a young spiritual man. And I want to think about that. Think about that. Could you step up to the plate and be used by God to establish a church, a fledgling church? If you were Timothy, what would your goals be if you went back to Thessalonica to strengthen the church? Where would you start? They're just a few months old in the Lord. They had no established spiritual leadership yet. They were under spiritual attack. They were under persecution. Had they even survived, what would you do? What would you do? So four things that Paul says to do here. Verse 2, to establish them. If you want a strong church, you must have a strong doctrinal position. Okay? Uh, praise the Lord. That's what we're doing here. Okay? Uh, the class that we just came out of right a few minutes ago, a half an hour ago, an hour ago, we were studying the tenets of the faith, the fundamental doctrines of the faith. You say, why do we go over stuff like that? Because it is so important to your walk with the Lord, to know this, to understand it, and to believe it. Okay? And that's what he did. He went back to establish them. We need to be established in the fundamental doctrines of the faith if we're going to stand against the attacks and the lies of Satan. And so if you've never seen a doctrinal statement, you don't know what we believe, go on to our website, which is... There we go. That's it. CalvaryBibleChapel.net. Download the doctrinal statement. Read it. Look up the scriptures. Be like the Bereans to see if these things are true. Believe it. Okay? Establish yourselves in the faith. If you're established in the faith, everything else falls into place. It's just the way it works. Okay? Secondly, verse 2, to encourage them. The word uh, encourage them is um, the same word we looked at uh, last week, which has its root in the, in the word paraclete. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and helps us. And so he was to go there to come alongside of them, 
individually, personally, and as a group, and encourage them in their walk with the Lord. It's one thing to know the truths of a doctrinal statement. It's another thing to walk in faith. Okay, And so both are important. It's to, to have the correct understanding of the Scripture and to walk the right way as you study the Scripture, as you read the Scripture, as you take in the Scripture, to walk in the right path. And that's what the encouragement was for, so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Uh, Verses 3 and 4, to embolden them. How did he embolden them? You know, I'll tell you one thing. If you're facing a trial, and you're suffering from this woe-is-me mentality, and you say to yourself, oh, God must have forsaken me. I'm suffering trials. I'm suffering hardships. Things aren't going the way I thought they would once I became a Christian. Welcome to the party. That's the way it is. If you're going to, to serve the Lord, those who will serve the Lord will suffer persecution. The Scripture says that. And you go, you're kidding me. Really? This is normal? Absolutely. In fact, it's one of the indications that you really know the Lord, is that Satan is attacking you, is, is coming after you. Okay? And so Paul says to Timothy, go there and embolden them. Come alongside of them and say to them, look, this is normal for the Christian life. God is not taking us on flowery beds of ease to heaven. Okay? It's not just going to be you know, a walk in the park. Expect persecution. Expect trials. It's to, it's to come. Don't be shaken by them. Paul says, remember when I was with you? I told you this would happen. And now you're experiencing them, experiencing this just as I told you. I predicted this, and it's come to pass. Finally, verse 5, to examine them. Paul sent Timothy to find out if the Christians had been tempted to throw in the towel and had their labor been in vain. You see, Satan was hindering Paul, and Paul had to come to the conclusion, well, if he's hindering me, is he also hindering them? If I'm being attacked, are they being attacked? And this just tore up his heart. Just like, you know, it's one thing as a father to suffer something, to suffer an injury, to suffer some kind of trial. But when I see my kids go through something, oh, man, it tears me up. And at times I think, Lord, let that be me instead of them. You know, it, it hurts to see somebody else go through trial. And Paul was saying that, look, this hurts me to know that if I'm suffering trial, that you might be suffering trials too. The Lord's giving me strength. Has he given you strength as well? Timothy, go find out. And so Timothy goes to find out. Are we tempted to go back into sin where life seems so much easier? Do you remember the, the, the uh, children of Israel when they were in Egypt? And they cried out to the Lord to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt and, and the slavery and all of this. And the Lord says, okay. Ten plagues on Egypt, wipes out most of Egypt, all the firstborn men, and and he brings them to the sea, and they go, oh, Lord, we're going to perish. And the Lord says, just sit back. Okay, Moses, put your your rod out. You know, the waves part. They go through on dry land. No problem. They get to the other side. They turn back, and the waves come crashing in on the Egyptians. The wheels of the chariots get stuck in the mud. They just went through on dry land. How come there's mud there now? Okay, they get stuck in the mud. The waters come over top of them. 
And they all drown, and Miriam sings the song of praise to the Lord that the horse and rider have been thrown into the sea. Hallelujah, praise the Lord, and the whole crowd is just cheering the Lord. Woo, we won. Where's the food? (laughs) Who forgot to bring the food? I'm thirsty. And they start grumbling and complaining against the Lord. Oh, how I wish we were back in Egypt instead of facing this hunger pain in my my belly. Oh, if only I didn't have these growlies and I was back in Egypt where we had leeks and onions and all that other smelly food. Seriously? Do we do that? Do we do that? And Paul wondered, have you been in this trial and you've been saved, you've been delivered, just like the children of Israel were delivered. You've been saved... Are you thinking about going back to Egypt? Really? Why? But they weren't. But he didn't know that yet. The testing of our faith comes, and the testing of our faith shows the reality of our faith. You remember the parable of the sower and the seeds? Some fell on hard soil, and Satan was described as birds that come and pluck the seed up. Some fell by rocky soil and it sprang up quickly and it withered in the heat. And some fell among thorns and the the thorns choked out the life. And some fell on good soil and grew and multiplied and bore fruit and uh, much fruit, reproduced. And the parable says, oh, well, there's four different kinds of Christians, you know, some that are, you know, so-so and some that are kind of so-so. And no, 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 there's only one kind of Christian. And that's those who are planted in good soil and who bear fruit. The testing of the sun coming out and and causing it to wither shows that there was no root, there was no fruit. And so Paul is saying, what kind of Christian are you? Where was the seed sown? Was it sown on good soil or not? Praise the Lord. They survived the persecution. So verses 6 through 8 is really Timothy's report Paul is in Athens. Timothy comes back. Paul is in Athens. I don't know how long it took for Timothy to go back to Thessalonica, how long Paul stood there, but I think he took a breath. (gasps) And he was holding it until Timothy came back. You know? That's maybe a bit of an exaggeration. But you understand, he he was concerned about them. What has happened to this baby church? So Timothy comes back. He gives a good report that in spite of the limited teaching they had received, in spite of the persecution, the Thessalonian Christians were going on well for the Lord. (sighs) And you can just see Paul sigh praise to the Lord. He let out a sigh of relief and a shout of praise to the Lord. What encouraged Paul so much? First of all, it was their faith. Their faith. So let's take a look at... um, Let me just turn to that. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So I want to just look at a couple of verses first. Verses 6, good news about your faith. Verse 7, it says... We were comforted concerning you by your faith. Verse 10, he says, Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. 
And so their faith in the Lord, not only their trust in him as Savior, but their continued walk with him uh, greatly encouraged Paul. He was comforted by that. Uh, Verse 6 is the second one, love. There are several terms in the scripture that could be used for love. One is brotherly love. One is um, more of a carnal love. And the other is agape love. Agape love is the same kind of love that God had for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. God so loved the world, that kind of love. And he says, I heard about your love. It was agape love. It was that kind of love for each other. Wow, what an encouragement to my heart that that is. It's more than affection. It's more than brotherly love. It's the love that makes sacrifices for one another. Really, in many ways, love is one of the true tests of the Christian life, our love for each other. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 of the supremacy of love. It is better than giving your body to be burned as a martyr. It's better than speaking in tongues of men and of angels. It's better than knowing all of the mysteries of the Bible. It's better than giving all of your possessions to the poor. If we do not have love, we are nothing. In comparison to faith and hope, love is the greatest of these, and the Thessalonians had it. And you know, I know there are believers here who also have it. They have that agape love. They would do anything for you. They would give the shirt off their back. They would do anything possible to help you out as a believer because they love you. Agape love. That is a great encouragement. Verse 6 also tells us that they had a desire to see Paul. The the love that Paul had for them, they uh, reciprocated uh, to Paul. It's a good sign. Very often when a a person wanders from the Lord, the last thing they want to do is be in close connection with other believers. They run, just like Adam and Eve did. They run, they hide, they do all kinds of things like that. But here Paul comes there were lies told about him, about a lack of love, and they said, no, 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 we know you love us. And we just want you to know, Paul, we love you too. Just want you to know that. This morning before coming to church, I won't think on who it was that did this, but uh, I never check my mail at the place that we're staying at right now, but I said to Christine, I said, hey, Christine, you better make sure that the mailbox is empty because I get complaints from the mail person all the time that it's too full. And um, there was a letter. There was a card in there from one of the saints here, two of the saints here. They just sent a love letter to me. Um, and it was, a, it was a good love letter. It was a letter that encouraged my heart this morning. And so I want to just tell you how much I was encouraged by that. You know who you are, and you shall remain nameless. No, I'll, I'll really let you remain nameless. But thank you. That was the love that they had for Paul, and Paul shared that love with them. Verse 8, let's look at that. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. And so their strong stand in the Lord was a great encouragement to, to him as well. He could now breathe again knowing that they were going on for the Lord. For now we live. In other words, I was holding my breath and I would die. But now that I've heard the good news, I can breathe again. Now I live. Now we live. Once he heard the news, that was the jump start he needed. In verses 9 through 13, we have Paul's prayer. We don't have time to go through it in great detail, so I'll just go over it as an outline. But if you ever want to know how to pray for the saints, 
Take a look at the way Paul prays for believers. It's a great lesson, great study, and I would encourage it if you want to know how to pray for one another. So in this passage here, I'll read it first, and then I'll just break it down. He says, um, For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints." So verse 9 is his joyful thanks to the Lord for them. Verse 10 and 11, his ceaseless prayer that he might come and see them face to face. Verse 10 is his earnest pleading that he might perfect them. In other words, might bring them to full maturity. Uh, Verse 12 is that they might increase in love to each other, just in the same way Paul loves them. He's saying, look, I love you. Love one another. You, you do love each other, but love each other even more. And then verse uh, 13, that they might have holy hearts before God at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Okay, so I want to just for a minute look at that last verse. The coming of the Lord, we often say, um, do you believe in the second coming of the Lord? And many of the believers say, oh, yes, I believe that. And what do you believe about that? Um, Many people say, well, I believe that he's coming back at any moment for his church. Okay, that's good. That's part of the second coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord really can be thought of more as a period of time rather than a single event. Okay. Let me illustrate it this way. My mom and dad often come down from Canada to be with us. And we say, Grandpa and Grandma are coming. This is not their second coming. It's, I don't know how many times they've come. But let's just say it's their 55th coming or something like that. When we say they're coming, the coming of Grandpa and Grandma, we don't mean the single event of them showing up at our doorstep. That's part of it. But when we say they're coming, we mean they're coming, they'll be at our door, but they're going to stay for a while, and there's a whole itinerary of things to do, and then eventually they'll reach the conclusion of that. Well, the second coming of the Lord is something like that. You have the initial coming of the Lord, his itinerary, shall we say, and then the conclusion of it. And I want to look at that Really quickly here. So the first thing is his coming for his saints. His coming for his saints. And it's interesting that in this book of 1 Thessalonians, we have a lot about the second coming of the Lord. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says this. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, we've already looked at those verses. 
But these verses have a specific event in mind. And it is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could call it phase one of his coming. And that is his coming to the air, to the clouds, for his church. Okay? Very important to understand these words. For his church. He's coming for us. Alright? Meaning that we're going to meet him in the clouds. Now, we're going to look more at that when we get to chapter 4. But that's the first event. And we say, it's, we believe in the imminent return of the Lord. What does that mean? It means he could come at any moment. There's nothing stopping him from coming now. There's no event that has to take place. There's nothing in prophecy that has to first be fulfilled. It's already. He could come any moment. The only thing he's waiting for right now is for the last person who's going to trust him and be part of the church to trust him. So if that's you this morning and you're the last one, believe on him. Trust in him so that we can all be out of here. (laughs) Okay? It's not the usual way of encouraging people to trust the Lord, but do it. Okay? I am waiting for the coming. Don't hinder it. All right? It says in verse 10 of chapter 1 that the coming of the Lord from heaven is an event that precedes the wrath to come. And so we have the Lord Jesus Christ coming for his church. We will be taken out and then the wrath of God will be poured out upon the earth. That's the first event. Chapter 2 speaks of the itinerary or the schedule of his coming. It's sometimes called the course of his coming. Um, It's when the church is raptured to heaven. That's the first phase. But when we get there, what happens? Now what? What do we do once we're there? Okay, so we're in heaven. Now what? Okay. So there's a seven-year period that takes place of judgment upon the earth. That's where God's wrath is poured out upon those who have not believed the gospel. It's also a time when the Lord takes up his dealings with the nation of Israel again and completes all the prophecies that are still unfulfilled for Israel. And it's a time when we are in heaven and we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine whether we should be there or not. If we're there, we should be there. Okay? It has to do with rewards uh, or lack of reward and the, the distribution of those rewards in heaven. And it is a time when heaven will be filled with praise and we will be singing, as we said earlier, worthy is the lamb that was slain. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? It's you in the presence of the Lord. It's seeing you there at that time because you trusted in Jesus Christ. On earth, as they say, it'll be God's wrath being poured out upon unbelievers. Then in chapter 3, Verse 13, it says that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Very important four-letter word. The rapture is the Lord Jesus Christ coming for his saints that we might rise up to be with him. The seven-year period of time that takes place of the tribulation And then this verse is talking about us, believers, we believers, coming back to earth with the Lord. 
to reign with him. Wow. I'm going to reign with Jesus? Yes. If you're a believer, you're going to reign with him. Paul is saying that the Thessalonians will be part of that throng of believers who will come back to the earth at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ after the rapture, after the tribulation. The Lord is coming to the earth to establish his kingdom on the earth and he shall reign on the earth for a thousand years. It's called the millennium. He is coming with his saints and that includes the Thessalonians. And that includes you. And it is at this time that the Lord Jesus Christ will show the world that you and I and the Thessalonians and all who have believed during the church age are blameless in holiness before God because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. He is going to say, look, world, these people, these ones are the trophies of my grace. I saved them, I delivered them from their sins, and they are holy, they are perfect, they are blameless, they are righteous, and all those other good things that he says about us. It's true. It's true. Believe the truth and throw away the lies. That's your future, believer. That's our hope. That's what the Lord has in store for you. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it, because that is the truth. Let's pray. We'll end with a prayer, and you'll be free to go for lunch. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us on the cross. We thank you that he not only saved us from our sin, but he has a future and a hope, a plan that is a glorious plan a plan that will honor and glorify him and and cause his name to be magnified and glorified and that there is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we look forward to that time when you will come for your saints. We look forward to that time when we are in heaven with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb when the rewards are given out and we can take the crown that you give us and cast it at your feet and we can worship you with that song in heaven. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb. And Lord, we look forward to the time when you will come back and you will establish your just and fair and righteous kingdom on the earth and all of this sin and all of this corruption will be done away. Lord, that you will reign from sea to shining sea that you will be the one who is supreme on the earth and that we shall reign with you. Lord, what a future you have for us. What, what a great, great event is the second coming of the Lord. And we look forward to that time and say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.